You're listening to Parenting Our Future. I'm parenting expert, Robin McMahon, author of The Yelling Cure and founder of Parenting for Connection. My podcast is all about providing you with the tools and solutions you need in all different areas of your parenting so you can create strong connections with your kids, get all the cooperation you want, and live a life that is full of joy and connection. And by the way, the tools and solutions that you're looking for in your parenting don't just live in each episode of my show. They're also in my free membership site, The Parent Toolbox, where you can access tools created by myself and my brilliant guests that cover everything from helping your kids to sleep, managing meltdowns, reducing overwhelm to getting your kids to listen the first time and so much more. Join The Parent Toolbox so you can download and use the tools that are ready on the site and Each week, a brand new tool is added. And of course, the best part is it's absolutely free to join and to stay in. You can go to www.parent-toolbox.com today. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to share with you another podcast that I think you're going to find really interesting. It's called Didn't I Just Feed You? It's a weekly candid conversation about feeding our families, even for parents who hate to cook. Hosts Stacey Billis and Megan Splawn are two food professionals who get real about feeding kids, tweens, and teens because they're also busy working moms, so they get it. They talk about how to turn things like nachos into a legit family dinner, to the magic of meatballs, to solving the after-school snack problem, even reducing kitchen waste and debt all at once. They chat with guests from Food Network stars to everyday moms who, let's be honest, are the real experts. In fact, Didn't I Just Feed You is a staple on the iTunes Top 100 Food Podcasts and the only food podcast made with parents in mind. Stacey and Megan are on a mission to make cooking easier, more delicious, and maybe even a little bit more fun. Find Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Now, you can also find Stacey and Megan on Instagram and Facebook as at Didn't I Just Feed You. Now let's dive into this next episode of Parenting Our Future. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Parenting Our Future. It's Robin here, and we're going to talk about pressure. You know how they say pressure, if it wasn't for pressure, that a piece of coal wouldn't turn into a diamond. And I heard that all my life from my dad, that pressure is good. And I am here to talk about how it can be good and how it can be not so good when it comes to parenting and your kids. I have Dr. Chris Thurber here. He's a board certified clinical psychologist, educator, author, and father with a BA from Harvard Harvard, and a PhD in child adolescent psychology from UCLA. He's an acclaimed keynote speaker and he serves as a clinician and instructor at Phillips Executor Academy. Welcome, Dr. Chris Thurber. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Robin. Uh, Oh, it's great to be here. Yes. Now you are the author of a book called The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, which That's is right. what we're here to talk about. So what made, yeah, yay. what made you write this book first and foremost? Well, I think my co-author Hank Weisinger and I realized that for at least a century and a half, we've been asking the wrong question about parental pressure. We've been asking how much is too much. And the general recommendation is to dial back the amount of pressure if our kids are having problems. But what we realized in our research is that it's not the amount, it's the kind, it's the type of pressure. So the question we need to be asking is, how are we applying pressure, not how much pressure? Okay, how are we applying pressure, not how much? Okay. 
So let's let's talk about that, uh, because you talk about sort of a child centered approach. Right. What do you mean by that when you talk about that? Well, I think, Hank, and I believe that a child centered approach, first of all, ensures that the expectations that parents are stating and generally the way that they're parenting their child is with respect to that child's individuality and what that child brings to the table. That means that, of course, parents are going to have tremendous influence on their child, especially when that child is young, based on their culture and their values. But parents should not be putting pressure on kids as a way of compensating for some deficit that the parent themselves feels that they have or as a way of living vicariously through your child. So naturally, we live vicariously through our children in the sense that we we can be very joyful about the things they accomplish. We can watch with great gratification their maturation and their good decision making. We can enjoy spending time with them and compare that to maybe some of the things that we liked or didn't like about our own relationships with our own parents. But this is not a way of um, using your child as a, a compensation for anything, but let them be an individual. Yeah. And it's not that easy, right? Because oh, no. we, right. we do have dreams for our family, for our kids. We see our, you know, our friends grow their kids up and what they're doing. And like, that looks good to me. I'd love it if my kids did that. And, you know, my husband and I, uh, we, so as Canadians and everybody who listens knows that not only am I just a Canadian, we play hockey and my boys play hockey. So yes, like the stereotypical hockey mom here, but both my boys stopped playing hockey. So my husband loves hockey, is a hockey player, um, did really well uh, as, as a youth in hockey and, you know, all, all that good stuff coaches the kids and then they both stopped playing. And at one point, my my one son stopped playing mid-season while my husband was the coach. And so my husband had to continue on, uh, you know, coaching the team without our, our son in it. Anyway, so the whole point is, is that it's hard because you get invested in that stuff, right? And it breaks your heart a little bit, doesn't it? It does. And I think, I don't know, for example, the circumstances under which one of your son's needed to stop playing mid-season. But what I would say all parents can strive for is praising uh, the effort rather than the outcome. And that way it's building your child's character rather than adding to the trophy case. Not that academic, athletic, and artistic achievements are, are not worth recognizing. Of course they are. But I think the message that parents need to be giving to kids is character-based, not achievement-based. So as I said, praising effort rather than outcome. And it is, as you pointed out, quite difficult, yet not impossible. And Hank and I work really hard in the unlikely art of parental pressure, since both of us are parents, to not sound glib or arrogant or say something that we hadn't tried ourselves that we knew worked. And also to use some humor and recognize that 
the things that we may strive for as ideals as parents are, are just that. Um, we're always making mistakes. We're always learning from those mistakes. And we can always be striving to be a better parent on Tuesday than we were on Monday. But it, it, it is difficult, but, but so achievable. And I think my experience of writing the book was being a bit surprised that the modifications we were recommending the modifications that I was making myself as a parent learning about unhealthy pressure were not enormous. They were enormously beneficial, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a sort of, I don't know, paradigm shift in how I was parenting. I can't really change my personality or my approach um, in some fundamental way, but how I deliver messages mm -hmm. and the way I respond to my child's distress changed because of the research I did for this book. Okay, so can we break it down? What is good pressure? What is bad pressure? Mm. So when we feel that a narrow outcome is the only successful outcome, and we feel that the stakes are really high, that can be experienced as unhealthy pressure and impair performance. So what's, what's ironic is we can all remember times, and for you this may be in a hockey game, when in the final seconds of the game with a tie score, somebody, you know, scores the winning goal or it's the game seven of you know nba finals and somebody sinks a three-pointer in the last second there are those rare instances where in an extraordinarily high pressure situation somebody's performance is memorably amazing but most of the time and this is not just chris thurber speaking this is statistically supported by research most of the time, even elite athletes performance in a high pressure situation where success is very narrowly defined, right? You're going to either make this next basket or not. And the stakes are really high. It's not any game. It's the championship game. Performance is typically not just average, but below average. So this is the message for parents to understand. They may be putting pressure on their kids thinking, if I press just hard enough, or maybe a little bit extra, their performance will increase. The opposite okay. is true. If you're pressing in a way that makes your child feel, there's really only one outcome that you're looking for, and the stakes are pretty high. I work in a high school, so classically in a high school, it's parents saying to their kids, no, look, you're very smart. You're capable of going to an Ivy League school and not just any Ivy League school, but let's narrow it down to Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Uh, let's face it, if you don't get into one of those three schools, life is going to be more challenging. You won't have as many connections and you know you won't make as much money or be as happy, whatever it might be. And you would think to yourself, well, no parent would really say that. And I would say after 23 <laughs> years working in a high school, no parent would ever say that publicly, but they do right. say things like that to their kids. And it's not just about college, it's about other things as well, but a narrow definition of success and a very high stakes proposition actually 
results in a decrement in kids' performance. They will perform less well. They will be less motivated. They will be more likely to engage in unhealthy risks. Their grades will be lower on average. What you need to do instead, and now this is the second part of my answer, healthy pressure is when you say, there are a range of outcomes here that would be successful. And it's not about where you go, it's about what you do when you're there. And if we're talking about schools, there are so many different options that I think would be a good match for your interests and abilities. What's key is that you make as many of those options available to yourself as you can by working hard, putting forth your best effort in your different endeavors, academic and athletic and artistic. And I would just leave out the part about, you know, where you go to school is going to determine the rest of your life or something that is making that circumstance feel very high stakes. So when parents do express a range of what they consider to be successful, when they base it in effort, when they, you know, are talking about the long-term benefits of some of their values, then kids know what those expectations are, but do not experience the sort of unhealthy pressure that impairs their performance. And the last thing I'll say is that about in answer to your question, I often hear from parents when I first, well, just when I tell them the title of the book, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, they say, oh gosh, you know, if, if one more person tells me I need to lower my standards because it's too much for kids to bear, I'm going to snap. And I say, well, you'll be happy to know that in the introduction of the book, we talk about the importance of maintaining your high standards and upholding those, but communicating them in a way that increases your child's mental health and performance. Mm -hmm. Well, because we can do a lot of damage when we have high standards and also don't listen to our kids mm -hmm. and also don't take into consideration their temperament, who they are, what kind of person they are. You can have an introvert and there's nothing wrong with an introvert. And, you know, we, I think that's the thing. That's sort of the trap in parenting, right? Is that we want mini me's, but that's not what we get. You get the kids you need, not the kids that you expect and that you right. want. And things do happen that derail the dream, if you will. Um, you know, uh, so I have two boys that both struggle with some mental health stuff and uh, which is what led to my son leaving hockey. Um, and uh, and it's and it's interesting, though, because I because you can see when you when you when you are running your own agenda, mm -hmm. how kids reject it mm -hmm. altogether. Right. Like if you say you have to play piano but actually I really want to play the drums, but nope, you have to play piano. They'll reject piano altogether. Right. And at some point your threats, just your threats, your punishments even are useless. Right. Yes. You know, and so, and that's not what you want. Right. And so what I hear you saying is bad air quotes, bad pressure is you have to get this certain amount or it's failure versus yes. good pressure, which is, okay, look, I just want you to try your hardest, do your best. We'll celebrate you wherever you are. And this one option is not the only option. There's many, and there's many roads to success. And we have to remember that our kids are beating with their own life force and they have their whole life ahead of them. And it's their life to live, not ours, right? 
Very true. And if anyone, again, is confounding or, con yeah, the, what you and I are both saying, which is high standards are excellent. Why would you want to lower your standards for the people you love most in the world? You want them to achieve those high standards. Check and ask yourself, how am I communicating this? And what is the standard? It is really what I'm saying there, you, you need to be a gold medalist or you need to go to this or that school or is what I'm saying matters most to me, how you treat other people, how you bounce back from adversity, what sorts of ways you're contributing to your friends and your community. Uh, I think once again, parents can start with a little introspection about Mm -hmm. what is most important for them and what they want their child to become rather than um, what would give them easy bragging rights. Yeah. So in other words, take a second and say, okay, what really is important to me? What are my values for my child? Is it A's at all costs? Therefore you're in, you're in tutoring, you're, you're in this, that, the other thing, or is it, I want you to be a happy, healthy person. Right. right. And that may mean some tutoring and some A's and that's lovely, but first and foremost, your mental health, your physical health, your emotional health is top of mind. And of course, okay. people who are in good physical and emotional health are the ones who achieve the most in life. <laughs> so, isn't that the, isn't that the thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think we have to remember we're living in a world now where the path to success is not the way it has been laid out for our generation, which is high school, then university, then your career. It's not so much that because the jobs of tomorrow, we don't know what they are yet necessarily, right? The, the most in-demand jobs maybe are not even here yet. So yeah, that's a great point, Robin. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, good. I like that. Okay. So let's talk about um, the, this is hard for me to say, the six S's of effective praise. <laughs> I mean, we might've already sort of talked about this, but this is from your book. And so I thought, I thought we would talk about this. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we, we, you mentioned some of them, but you know, that what Hank and I call the six S's of effective praise. First of all, uh, these are generalities, but the more you can implement them, the better praise that is meaningful at increasing motivation and performance is praise that, first of all, happens soon. So that's the first S. You know, you don't wait six months to tell them, you know, or mm -hmm. as an afterthought that you noticed something that they did. Uh, second, that it's spontaneous, that it's unprompted. It's unusual that kids will ask for praise, but little kids, of course, will say, you know, watch me or what do you think? Um, it's also really nice as, as kids get older and they're not asking for it so much that you that you offer it and um, not wait for them to ask, what do you think? Maybe the most important S is that it's sincere. It really comes from the heart and isn't dished out as something formulaic. It doesn't have to be even lengthy to be sincere. You and I am sure have both had the experience of uh, when we were younger, a loving caregiver looking at us a certain way with a smile or putting a hand on our shoulder. And that communicated everything about their pride and you know the praise they had for us. The next S would be that it's specific. So rather than saying great job, you say, 
you know, the way you used your instep on that pass helped keep the ball on the ground. And that was what made it a wonderful assist. Um, I think ultimately what led to your teammate being able to score that goal. The more specific you can be, the better. Um, you know, kid comes home and shows you that they got 100 or a 90 or 18 out of 20 on a math test. If you say like, oh, that's that's awesome. You'd say, well, that's that's sincere. That's spontaneous. That's soon. I, you know, check, check, check. But if you look at it and say, oh, wow, I mean, okay, so 18 out of 20, you know, that's fantastic. Let me, even if you don't remember any of your high school math, which is the <laughs> category I would put myself in, you're yeah, able to say, okay, you know, just, just looking at this first problem and how you laid it out, I don't understand the math, but it's pretty clear that you went sequentially and, and that also led you to the right answer. Just the specificity is helping. Um, then the next S is that there's some striving. Um, you're focusing, as we said earlier, on effort rather than outcome. So encouraging their perseverance, you know, teaching tennis, for example, uh, not focusing on whether the ball goes over the net or whether it's in or out of the court. If you're just working on, you know, a forehand or putting topspin on, uh, but instead like, uh, that's good. That's good. You know, carrying over um, the ball. Let's see the follow through that sort of thing that it is you're praising the process of, you know, perseverance. And finally, that it is, this is the, S number six, standalone, that praise not be a prelude to criticism. You know, oh, it was a that was an amazing performance. Um, you know, you, you you played that piece on your violin so well. I I did notice that in the second movement there were a lot of notes that were out of tune, and you seemed to lose your way in the you know the third movement or whatever it might be. Yeah. If we are thinking, or sometimes it's the, you know, praise, criticism, praise sandwich, that somehow the way to offer constructive criticism is couched in, in praise. The things I don't like about that are that our kids are going to start to learn that praise isn't really praise. It is just a way of laying the groundwork for criticism. So it, it doesn't feel good. Um, the other assumptions- listening. They're going to stop right, listening, exactly. Right? They yeah. won't hear the praise. You're exactly yeah. right. And um, I guess the other problem might be that they, you know, the the implication if we have to couch criticism in uh, layers of praise is that our kids are too fragile to just hear the criticism. So as much as I believe in standalone yeah. praise, I also believe in standalone criticism uh, of a constructive and you know civil variety, but please don't have praise be your prelude to criticism. It doesn't mean that in the That's same conversation, point. you can't offer praise and criticism, but please, please don't be formulaic. And some of the time just offer praise. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine described it as kiss, kick, kiss. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Like, uh, but, but you also don't want it to be like a little doggy treat. Like, Oh, 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 Here's a little dog right. shoot of praise, right? Like, yeah, no, right. It's got to be. And so, okay. So you said soon, spontaneous, sincere, specific, striving, and standalone. I you love the standalone. I love it so much because it can't, yeah. And there can't be a but or 
and next time do this. Right. Mm -hmm. And also Mm -hmm. don't, and also don't, you know, lock them in a car and uh, on, on your way home from the game and, uh, you know, tell them all the ways they did it wrong. Right. And yeah, the thing exactly. is that we're also supposing that our kids don't already know that they had a rough game or whatever. Right. They know they know we don't need to you know, we don't need yeah. to do that. Here's the thing that I love so much about what you're talking about in your book too is unconditional love. I love yeah. it so much. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Hank and I talk about these eight transformations from mm-hmm. harmful pressure to healthy pressure and their facets of the same concept that we've been talking about. This is one of them, you know, that you're bringing up. It is a harmful kind of pressure to believe as a young person that or as an adult, because we still, you know, many of us are still blessed with parents who are still alive. The, The belief that our parents or primary caregivers esteem for us, how much they value us, how much they love us is somehow related to our achievements, right? Is, a very harmful and and insidious kind of pressure. Uh, when I spoke earlier about small variations in how we communicate, I, you know, I can give you an example related to unconditional love. So both of my boys, who are now seventeen and nineteen, uh, play the violin. Growing up, my wife is a musician, and to her credit. She never said to the boys, I love music, you should love music. Mm. They were around it enough to really begin to love it. And they picked instruments, violin that she knew nothing about. So it really wasn't um, directed. It was really through exposure. But when the boys, and they started with Suzuki method, which you may have heard of, and that begins at a very basic level, but importantly, includes public performance, even when kids can only play a few notes. The rationale being what one of the wonderful things about music is sharing it. And, you know, you don't have to wait until you are, you know, sitting first chair with Boston Symphony before you're worth listening to. You're worth listening to when you're three and a half and you can play row, row, row your boat. So even at a young age, what a lot of parents would do and sort of a culturally congruent practice would be to give the person, the child in this case, a little cute bouquet of flowers when the performance was over. And I'm not talking about playing one song, but when you get done with a book, a dozen or so uh, pieces in the Suzuki method, then you do a recital. Okay, fabulous. But we realized and this wasn't right away. This was when our kids were, you know, young teenagers, 12, 13. There's something about giving this bouquet of flowers at the end of the performance that's accidentally communicating the wrong message. And it's not so much a message of how much we love them, but the subtext might be, you know, if you get can get through this, if you play well, then you get this reward. I said, what we're really wanting to reward is the 
tremendous dedication it took to get to this point where you can do a performance. So I want to still give the flowers, which I think is fantastic, but I want to give them to our boys when they're in the green room half an hour before the performance to say, I wish you luck. I hope this goes well. Mama and I are so proud of all the time you put into practicing, the expression that you're putting into playing. And we know that you'll look out at people's faces at the end and see the joy that you've brought to them here, you oh. know, is, is a symbol of our yes. pride, you know? I never so thought of that. I love it. And when I say there's a variation, that's what I'm talking about. Did I go through a radical, you know, tectonic shift in my parenting? No, I still love to do this sort of, you know, non-gender stereotype thing of giving my boys flowers, but I just, my wife and I changed the timing and yeah. we never want intentionally or unintentionally to be communicating the message to our kids that how much we think of them and how much we love them is, is somehow related to their performance. They could go out and yeah. you know fall on their face and forget a bunch of pieces. We're going to love them just as much. Um, and kids have to experience that, not just be told that. Yeah. And even if those flowers were for just the effort, it would be sort of sour if they did fall on their face, right? It would be like, oh, well, I don't want yeah. this now, right? That's uh, a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really, I love that. That's really lovely. Um, it's really lovely. And, you know, one of the things that I think is the cost in all of this is, is not just because you said something that sparked something. So I'll get to that. Mm. <laughs> um, it's not just our kids, you know, uh, mental health, well-being, you know, when so much pressure because they will, they will reject us and, and so on, but it's our relationships that are at risk with them too. And relationship with our kids is vitally important. Uh, and, and I don't mean a relationship where they run the show, but a relationship that, you know, we, we don't have our kids just for 18 years, yeah. We, we want to be in a relationship with them for life. And therefore, when you say, you know, and there's some of us that are lucky enough to have parents who are alive still, if those parents are still running their own agenda, we don't want to be with them as adults. We don't want our kids around them, right? So yes. we want to be careful all through this parenting life as it morphs and changes to, to, to accept what our adult children are also the, the decisions they're making and not put pressure on them that it's not good enough or whatever too, right? So important, Robin. And I think one of the transformations we talk about is um, to earn your child's respect, not incite rebellion. And really what we're talking about in that chapter relates to your comment, not being too invasive. Uh, many of us can probably think of an example of a mother-in-law could be a father-in-law <laughs> but coming to our home as an adult child and they're telling us how to parent or how to load the dishwasher or how to do yeah. this or how to do that and it's it's an example of what you're describing this kind of tragic it may not be a rebellion at that age it will definitely be rebellion as a teenager but when when we are invasive in that way and not respecting the autonomy of our child it's detrimental to the relationship and the 
harmful pressure is you've you've got to do it this way and again it's a very narrow definition this mm -hmm. is the way there's you, there's only one right way to load the dishwasher i mean you do whatever you want but it is you know you won't will be doing it wrong <laughs> so here's a challenge for anyone who's not yet uh you know we're not talking about the um, adult adult parent child relationship but if you have younger kids let's say between the ages of two and I don't know, 14 or 15, try some child-directed play. And a lot of your listeners will be saying, oh, I do that all the time. I ask my kid, you know, what would you like to do? And they say, oh, I want to play uh, checkers. And so we play a game of checkers. And I say, okay. But child-directed play, if they choose checkers, looks pretty different than most parents would do it. You would need to say, all right, uh, where are we going to set it up? Um, oh, kitchen table. And at that moment, if you say, oh, you know what? Not, let's not do it on the kitchen table. Let's, you know, the lighting here is kind of funny. Um, and uh, I haven't, you know, wiped off the table from breakfast. Let's do it on the dining room table. Okay, do you want to be red or do you want to be black? Uh, I want to be red. Well, um, okay. I was going to say I wanted to be red, but I, I guess I can be black, right? You know, child-directed play is actually don't make any of the decisions. And of course, right. somebody is going to say, what if your kid start, you says, well, this we're going to play checkers, but um, not with these pieces. We're going to play with the kitchen knives. Like, okay, <laughs> obviously, we're not talking about your child suggesting anything unsafe, but most parents don't realize how much they micromanage even recreational activities by inserting their opinions, by uh, saying how something should go. When I first read about child-directed play and my boys were about three and five, I thought, I, I, I can't not insert myself when we're doing the most unstructured kinds of things like playing Legos and not building anything in particular. But I realized you know, I'm not traumatizing my children, but I think they would enjoy it even more and develop a healthy sense of agency if they got to choose what the game was or what the goal was. So that's a great challenge for parents. Yeah. Try to have some unstructured playtime with your kids where they make all of the decisions. Yeah. It's harder than it sounds. Oh, totally. I can see myself like twitching in the corner and just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but what that shows your kids too. And I think the added benefit is that the big people in their lives who make all the decisions, listen to me. And what I say is important to them and they yeah. listen and they do it. And that makes me feel good. Yeah. You know, and that's really beautiful. That is a, a that mm. is a, a road to connection, you know, for, for kids, which yeah. is really beautiful. Right. So I do that. Try that. Yes. I love it. I love it. Even if you're don't understand it, even if it seems weird, <laughs> we do we want like i can see the lego right like as clear as day like we kind of want to make sense out of it no i've got to make an animal i've got to make a building i've got to make right. no it could just what hey it's it's a free form you know it's whatever yeah. right yeah. Uh, i would do things like hand them a different shaped piece and say that would make a better windshield you know like yeah come on dad yeah what was wrong with the other one you know <laughs> and it, and again None of these individually are traumatizing to kids, but right. if the pattern, as you said, is that grownups know better about everything, that's a harmful kind of pressure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And they're already so powerless. Everything is decided for them, you know? Yeah. So let's give them some power. Yeah. Really, it's really good. So you're talking about these transformations, right? And you said there's eight transformations. So one of them is the timing that you mentioned of the flowers, right? Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of a couple more? Yeah, I think um, one of the best ones I could share that's easier to explain in this format is front-loading empathy. It's oh. very tempting as a parent when our child of any age comes to us in some kind of distress. Uh, They might be a toddler, they might be school age, they might be a teenager, or maybe this is your adult child, but they come to you, they're upset about something, something didn't go well. It is often the case that we respond with the best intentions by problem solving, right? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, your child comes to you and says, I got a D minus on my English essay. And the first words out of our mouth are, well, you have to go back and talk with the teacher then about making a revision, or you'll certainly have to spend more time on the next essay, won't you? These are things, as you said earlier, that the child already knows, Mm -hmm. and it is only going to be annoying to hear them repeated. What any person wants in almost all cases when they're experiencing distress and they're going to a trusted other person to express this is they want to feel understood. They want to feel connected. They, that child who just got the D minus on the English essay, you know, needs to hear, wow, that's, Mm. that's tough or, but that's a lot lower than you expected, or that's disappointing or that must make you angry. Um, especially since you worked really hard on it. Hmm. But here are the two pitfalls. Parents will sometimes conflate empathy with agreement. You do not need to agree oh, yes. with what your child is feeling or thinking. And, and, and saying that you understand what they're thinking or feeling is not an endorsement. So your teenager might come to you and say, um, in tears, you know, uh, Robin just broke up with me. And if they were not particularly fond of Robin, they might say, well, you know, look, there's other fish in the sea. Um, or, well, you know, I don't, you know, Robin never treated you that well anyway. Minimizing it or yeah, yeah. Uh, trying to, you know, put some sort of sugar coating on it because you don't want to say, oh, wow, that's like, you must be devastated, or I understand why you're so sad. We hesitate to do that because we think, ah, you know, I don't really like that person, or I didn't think they were great for my kid anyway. But that, 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 that's not about that. It's about validating their experience. You, you can talk about whether you agree or disagree with the course of action that might follow, but we need to front load empathy Mm. and um and then as you pointed out give our kids credit for what they might already know or understand so don't let empathy be just the prelude to problem solving well that you know i understand why you're so upset or that's that's shocking but you know here's what you should do because you will have just contaminated that empathy like just yeah offer the empathy and let it sit there and 
if you've mischaracterized how they're thinking or feeling, they'll correct you. They say, no, I'm not, I'm not shocked or surprised. I'm, I'm angry or no, I'm not angry. I'm really disappointed or I'm jealous or so there'll be that connection. And then I always like to ask kids, do you want some help thinking about like what to do next? Or do you have that pretty much figured out? Mm -hmm. Give them credit for being smart enough to have some ideas. Mm -hmm. But in any case, recognize that when someone comes to you expressing distress, they want a, a connection, an emotional connection before anything else. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful because the opposite of that is really making it about me, making it about the, the parent. Right. Oh, well, I never liked them anyway. Well, it's not actually about you. So exactly. that's <laughs> completely irrelevant mom. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and so what you're saying, and, and it's also the last thing I want to hear is a lecture on what I should have done or whatever. Like, don't right. give right. me a lecture, please. <laughs> and I know like we want to teach, right. We want to teach so bad and we, completely screw it up when we lecture because I don't know the last time uh, a lecture has actually ever worked uh, in yeah. changing behavior or creating new outcomes or whatever. Um, but but I, I hear you. It's really like, okay. And, and, and I always say like, parenting isn't an emergency. Like you got to like slow down for a second mm. because if you're, if your immediate response is to say, I hated her. I'm kind of happy, you know, but act, you got to stop yourself. So like being aware and slowing down a little bit and saying, oh, like from your perspective, oh, yeah, it must have been so hard. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. So zip it. <laughs> In other yeah. words, zip your lip and listen and, and ask too. Because you also don't want to go in and say, oh my gosh, you must be totally devastated, right? Because what if that's wrong, right? Just, yeah. How does, oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know what? When you do empathy right, you see the other person just sort of like, thank you. Like, thank you yeah. for getting me, you know? And doesn't that feel incredible when somebody gets you, like really gets it's you? It's amazing. Well, there's another benefit too, besides that it nurtures the relationship. And that is neurologically when, when we're anxious or angry or hurt, the part of our brain that regulates emotions, our limbic system, which is multiple structures, it shunts the, re the part of our brain, our frontal lobes, that part behind our forehead that we need for hypothetical thinking, planning, you know, abstract uh, reasoning and impulse control, things like that. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're better thinkers when our emotions aren't up in the rafters. Uh, it doesn't mean eliminate emotion if you want to think clearly, but you do have to go from being very upset to less upset in order to let that rational part of your brain re-engage. Mm -hmm. So another reason to not just respond to somebody's distress with problem solving is nine times out of 10, they're not ready to do that kind of thinking. Exactly. So yeah. It's not going to sink in anyway. You're not going to get, uh, you know, if it's a teenager, you're going to get, that's a stupid idea, dad. You know, uh, <laughs> they're, not, they're not afraid to say it to your face yes. either. 
And then it's going to be, don't talk to me like that. And now you're completely off whatever yes. caused them to stress. And yes. now you're having an argument about your communication. And that wasn't where either of you wanted to go. So yeah. you know, empathy brings people down out of the rafters and allows them to do that next step. And as you said, sometimes you can be wrong. Another of the transformations is to question effectively. I loved what you said a few minutes ago. You know what? I, I imagine that's horrible news, but I I don't want to presume. I'm like, what are you going through right now? Mm -hmm. Which is an open-ended question, a closed-ended question. Like, um, uh, are you going to find somebody else to take to prom? Has a yes or no answer. So that's what mm -hmm. we mean by a closed-ended question. Not going to garner too much information. Open-ended mm -hmm. questions invite more dialogue. What are you going through right now? Or, you know how did you handle the afternoon? Those are better questions when it comes to reducing harmful pressure. Mm -hmm. And again, are you going to uphold high standards? Of course. If the conversation leads to, um, well, are you going to retaliate against this person or not? You know, your high standards for your child's social behavior are mm. just as high as they ever were. And it's mm -hmm. a conversation about being, you know, responding to a disappointment with grace or not, you know, retaliating, being, you know, socially aggressive, whatever it might be. The, the high standards are as intact as they ever mm. were. But um, again, to your point, it's about that child's development, you might have been really looking forward to taking pictures of, you know, your child all dressed up with their date on the way to prom. And suddenly, mm. if you make it about yourself, like, oh, you know, mm. there were going to be those cool pictures, or we were going to have this party, or mm. you've, you've missed an opportunity. And the harmful pressure is that you're communicating to your child what was really important to you was going to be those pictures or talking to the other parents at the party. Again, like we get back to sort of bragging rights or appearances yeah. when yeah. that's not really important. Not fair either. Right. Because again, True. you're making it about you, right? Like right. the most important thing about your grad is my experience of it actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Wait, it's your yeah. grad. Oh, I forgot. Oh, right. Okay. Let's, let's, let's just dial that back for a second. But that's a relationship mm -hmm. destroyer too, yes. because your kids aren't dumb, especially as they get into teenagehood uh, and they call you on it pretty regularly as mine definitely do. Um, and yeah, it's just, you don't want that to be the memory. Well, mom totally screwed it up for me. You know, right. yeah, I remember prom. Mom was, you know, she was crazy or whatever, whatever, yeah. right? So, yeah. you know, yeah. I think this is so, so lovely. And look, all we want is to build strong relationships with our kids. Really, I think what you're saying is what I say is relationship first, right? Yeah. Doesn't mean you don't have standards. And if they can't meet the standard, then I think you ask why you ask yourself why, okay, mm. why do I have the standard? Is this standard out of alignment with a bunch of whatever things, filters, different things, Yeah, child, their temperament. And why can my child not do it? Is something else going on 
for them. So you just have to ask why and be open to the answer, I think, too, right? So it takes just a lot of growth and maturity to be a parent. And we often go into it not realizing all of that stuff. And so it's people like you and your partner who wrote this book. Um, you know, the work that I do, like I, I we're here to sort of bridge that gap and let people know, you know, this is what really matters to our kids. This is what matters. Yes. This is what makes good people who thrive in tomorrow's world, which is what this is all about, right? <laughs> Amen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the book is The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure. You and, um, yes, you're calling Hank. Hank <laughs> Weisinger. Yeah. Weisinger, yes. Uh, both doctors, uh, both psychologists, um, and, uh, and, and have written this beautiful book. Thank you so much. Where can people get the book? So the book is available on Amazon uh, throughout North America at your local bookseller. Um, it's published by Hachette, but it's available anywhere you get books. That's so great. And you have a special uh, item for our toolbox, which is uh, exclusive insights um, from your book for the Parenting Our Future listeners. So that will be in the Indeed. parent toolbox. Yes. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I'm excited. And I encourage your listeners to offer feedback to Hank and me to share their stories and let us know what questions you have. We want to keep the dialogue going just as we have had a wonderful dialogue today. Okay, well, that's great. I go live on my page every Tuesday uh, on Facebook. So I'll ask that question to the people that show up as well. And we'll continue to have this conversation because I think that that's great. It, you know, that's really important to, to be able to have that conversation with parents who are in the thick of it, right? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for being here and for sharing this vital information for us all. You're all, you're going to make us all better parents. And that's just the, that's just what we're here for. So thank you so much. You're welcome. That makes me feel good. Thanks for having me as a guest. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon, and if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe, and if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace and care.